Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to How We Evolve. I recently recorded a conversation with Scott Galloway about masculinity and the experience of being a man in this rapidly evolving world. It's not quite ready to go live, but I am very excited to share it with you because Scott is both incredibly informed on the issue and also opens up quite vulnerably about the things he struggles with as a man. In the meantime, I thought it might be helpful to revisit some old conversations we've had on this podcast on topics that touch close to some of the things that came up with Scott. This first one is with Robbie Bent. Robbie is the founder and CEO of Othership, a company shaking up the wellness scene with transformative experiences such as group sauna retreats, ice baths, and breath work. If you haven't been to an Othership location yet, I certainly encourage you to check it out. They are in Toronto with two locations and opening up in New York shortly. We recorded this conversation about a year and a half ago. In this conversation, Robbie opens up quite a bit about his personal evolution and also how he's uniquely preparing for fatherhood. His son is probably just over a year old now, so it's probably a good time to get Robbie back on the pod, but that is still to come. Please note that this episode was recorded when this podcast was still known as field tripping, in case you find that reference confusing. I hope you enjoy. And then the other thing that came up was like, you carry the trauma of your parents, the traumas they had are like genetically passed to you. And I have, and whether it's environment or, or, or not, like I have a lot of things. I was like, okay, if I can go and like, just hammer out three deep, super deep, hardcore sessions to like, try to let go of some of these patterns. So I don't pass them on I'm like pretty scared of ayahuasca. It always, especially like the deep ones, but it's like, okay, I'm going to do this for my son, like to be a good dad. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Today, we have world-famous or soon-to-be world-famous Robbie Bent with us. Robbie is the CEO and co-founder of Othership, a platform that offers a transformational breathwork app as well as physical spaces built around sauna and ice bath classes. The mission of Othership is to affect positive change and address the problem of loneliness and the detrimental effects it has on our individual and collective health. Robbie's wisdom about the intersection between mental and physical health has helped improve the lives of many, including his own. Today, we'll be talking about being a founder and building a community, breathwork, cold water, and the mental stamina that comes with it, and the easy, natural ways to regulate your nervous system to live a happier, healthier life. Robbie, thanks so much for joining us today, and welcome to Field Tripping. Thanks, Ronan. Super, super grateful to be here and excited. It's good to see you, man. It's been been quite a while. I have a, a confession to make is I did some secret shopping last night and I actually went to Othership for the first time. I don't know if any of your staffers uh, outed me, but it was a very cool experience. It was the free flow experience, not a class, which I was hoping to attend, but the only time I could make it there was for free flow. So you have created a very special and very beautiful place. So let me start by saying congratulations to you and, and thank you for doing that. Man, that's amazing. I, I wish I was there now. I love, uh, it's like one of my favorite things is to take people through their, their first time and like experience it with them. It just like seeing smiles on people's faces. It's, it's my favorite place actually in the world to, to be. And so <laughs> I was away for a while as I was telling you. And so I just got back and I'm like trying to be in there every night. So I'm, I'm bummed. I, I missed you, but also really stoked that you went in advance of the podcast. That means, means a lot. 
Of course. Um, and I would absolutely love to go back sometime with you and experience firsthand the Robbie Bent version of Othership because uh, it's a privilege I will totally exploit and take advantage of. So count on it next time. But this time I was like, I got to get in before we record this podcast. So so I just took, took a, a leap and then went for it. So We've had the opportunity to hang out a few times, but I don't actually know that much about your story, about how you came to found Othership uh, and do all the amazing work you're doing right now. So can you kind of give us the overview from any meaningful moments along the line from birth to now? From birth to now. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a long ways, ways back, but all super relevant. So was very obsessed with success growing up like saw my dad worked really hard my mom very like oh you need to you know get good grades in school and get a good job and if you have a good job and you have money you'll be safe and so I really like worked super hard in high school I went to business school and never at that age we're not really taught to think about you know what we want to do and you don't even know who you are and so I just knew that I could make my parents proud if I like had a good job and if I had money people would like me and that, that was my you know, the viewpoint. And so this really type A personality, competitive, I went to business school, um, went into finance because that was like the best job where you make the most money and absolutely hated it. Worked hundred hour weeks, made it maybe three years, ended up transitioning out of that field, and just, but still like very insecure. And it was like, okay, well, I want to make money. I want people to like me, you know, I want girls to like me and just not feeling like good about myself internally. And so um, got into startups. Like, oh, that's the fastest way. I'm going to get rich. You know, I'm going to build a startup and had a technical co-founder in Toronto and thought erroneously that like, oh yeah, that's, this is how you get rich. And so I raised money, we built this product and just total disaster, like raised $25 million, which was a miracle that we did that in Toronto. Um, it was a telecom platform, kind of like Google Fi. So Wherever you travel, we would send you a local identity and you wouldn't pay roaming. And so we would give this out to super wealthy people and they would travel to Europe and make a call and it'd be like, you just got charged $900 by Rogers, but we've, you know, you're only paying 10 through us. And they would use it and be like, wow, this is amazing. That's not actually what was happening. We were like subsidizing it to start, but that's, we did kind of like, it's called like a man in the middle as a demo. And so we were able to raise money from these people and, and I, I knew nothing about startups. So you know, I was like, oh, I need to hire senior people. I don't know what I'm doing. And so I hired all these senior people from Rogers. All of a sudden we had like 60 people working for us. Didn't know what everyone was doing, grew way too fast and like didn't really have a good product. So we can, we can dive into anything you, you want to know about there. But fast forward, that business took four years of my life from about 24 to 28, ended up failing. My parents had invested money. A friend of mine invested a million dollars, zero for everyone. Company went into bankruptcy. It was just toast. I had to fire all the people. I was getting messages every day of people yelling at me. I had to steal equipment out of a data center to put it in another data center. And like at that age, it just felt like my life was, was ending every morning. And it, it first world problem for sure. But I just felt like, hey, I tried to be successful and I'm not. And I'm a, I'm a loser. You know, I'm a failure. And like this thing is not going to work. I you know, had to move out of my apartment, move back into my parents' basement. I had like literally zero dollars in my bank account. And so that was a really tough time. And then on top of that, to deal with the stress, I was using drugs. And so I, you know, would go out on a Thursday night, have a glass of wine and then start doing cocaine and like would disappear for, for two days. And so the worse things got, 
uh, from a stress standpoint, the worse that behavior got, which, you know, again, it just was the cycle that was really awful. And so, so drugs were something I struggled with in high school, but like was functional. Same as in university. I grew up in, you know, outside of Toronto and it was very common, like heavily drinking, partying. I love, I'm very social, love that kind of stuff. And, but as I got older, it became like a, an actual struggle. So I end up in this turning point at 28 where businesses failed, live in my parents' basement, zero dollars, drug problem, like really at a low. I'd broken up with my girlfriend at the time as well. And so it was just, that was kind of the start of what led to the practices behind what became Othership. You know, there, there's a lot there to unpack. And, and, and maybe one of the reasons that you and I have always kind of like jived on some levels is like your journey early on was very similar to mine, which was there was an emphasis. I don't know, I necessarily call it stress, but there's certainly an emphasis in my family. And I think it's a very Jewish kind of thing, but obviously not exclusive of like focus on good grades, get a professional designation. You know, start a career always being told, well, if you have this designation, you can go out and do whatever the hell you want if you don't like it. Uh, and then like everything was always kind of set. So I was very much on the path of like, get through high school, get through university, get to law school because that was the designated profession that I had chosen, you know, get a job and everything would be kind of copacetic and you get married and have kids and that was a good life. And, and, and kind of that was it. And as evidenced by this very conversation or the fact that we're able to have this very conversation, that was not a path that, that worked out for me. Uh, well, it worked out beautifully for me, I guess, in terms of the ends, but in terms of it staying on that path, it would, did, not, uh, it did not end in, in that beautiful narrative that people like to weave. Where, where do you think it came from in your household? Like, Why, why is such an emphasis on, on, on that? And, and when did you find that you absorbed that kind of ethos? Was it very, very early on. Cause I was a slacker until about grade 11 or 12 when I realized, oh shit, if I don't start working hard and getting good grades, then I'm not going to get into university. And this whole dream that I had been sold on uh, became out of reach. And so I really cleaned up my act and, and got good grades. But I was always kind of indifferent up to that point. But it sounds like you were pretty focused uh, all the way through. I think there's a number of different patterns. So a lot of these patterns start when you're, you're young and so like really young, you know? And so the first one was just, uh, I think my mom had a lot of trauma, never came from a, a wealthy family, Eastern European immigrants. And this idea, like they grew up quite poor. And so there's idea of safety, you know? And so if any food would be wasted in the house, it was like disaster, right? This mentality of like, we're not going to have enough. And so kind of growing up um, without the mindset of abundance, with like this scarcity of, of safety that I picked up from her. So there was this need of, you know, I still feel it now. It's like, how much is in my bank account? Like when I went, when I was broke and had zero, I was like, how am I going to be able to get food? Which is not a real consideration. Like I was able to get food, you know, but the, just this perception of safety was something young that I, that I picked up from my mom. And then, and then because she wanted me to be safe, she was pushing so hard, like you need to go to the best school. So you, you you make money, you're not unsafe. And so that was like a really big theme. And the second, because she was pushing me so hard, uh, my parents would reward my behavior with, with validation. And so it's like, you know, come home with a test score and it's 90%. Like, wow, you're amazing. You're so great. You know? And so what I started to develop was that like, Hey, I want to put my hand up and know the answer like early. And then, oh yeah, I want to do good on this test because my parents are going to reward me. And that means I'm good enough. And so not in any, like my parents are amazing. They're so supportive. They like, you know, gave me money when I needed it. They paid for my school. I'm like still lucky. But I think that behavior can start to make you feel like I'm not good enough on my own. 
I need to achieve. So I think that started like very early on that like if I, and it's because my parents wanted me to be safe, that if I achieved, I was good enough. And so always like wanting to make them proud. And it was like this, yeah, battling like self-love is something that's like my work. And my biggest thing is just like, I am good enough no matter what. And something that psychedelic work and meditation has helped, but it's still deep down there. So I think those are two of like the main driving forces. And then that I am good enough started becoming with friends in, in high school. And so I started noticing like, oh, if I have nice clothes and like a nice car and I'm getting attention from girls and yeah, that feels good. That makes me feel like I'm good enough because I'm like cool, you know, and I'm popular and I have friends. And so that became something really important because I was so insecure. And so that was important in university and, and after, and like also to like a detriment of my health, where I like going out so much was for that like validation of feeling cool. And it was the same same feeling of just like, I am not good enough. So I want validation from others, whether it's through career and material things. And so that led to, you know, wanting to be in finance and wanting to be successful. And, and those drives aren't healthy and can be taken like way too far. So it was a long time to really unravel those things. I appreciate that very much resonates with me. When did you become aware consciously of I'm not good enough being that driver. I think when I started, so, so I'm in this like dark hole of a space and, you know, I'm a lot of my friends, I went to great business school. They're, they're super successful at this point, you know, like they're making money, going for nice dinners. And I'm like, fuck, like, I hope they don't order any alcohol. I've got like 25 bucks in my pocket, <laughs> you know, like I, oh, like, can I get a side bill? And it's like embarrassing too, right? Like you don't have money and like, you don't want to say like, Hey guys, I can't afford this. So I'm kind of in this hole of like, just feeling like I've missed my chance. And especially when you're 27, 28, 29, it feels like you're old, you know, you don't realize you still have another 40 years to where I'm like, I've missed my chance. I'm a loser. I'm never going to be able to, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no skills. And I got into Tim Ferriss and was just like, okay, if I can master my morning, I can master my day. And, and fast forward through that, I had this idea. I just want to conquer my fears. And if I can conquer my fears, like that's going to change my life. So whatever I'm afraid of, I'm going to go into it. And I was, I was afraid of quite a lot of things when I was young as well. I was afraid of the dark. I was afraid of fighting and we can get into fear and what it is. But it's like, you know what? I'm just going to go after things that make me uncomfortable and do them. And so the, the hardest thing was I got an opportunity to move to Israel. And I said, you know what? this is it. I'm changing my life. I'm going to this new country alone. I'm not Jewish. Don't speak Hebrew. Uh, somebody invited me out there to look at hardware companies because that's what I've been doing for four years. So, you know, drop of a hat and move out to Israel and I'm there and it's really hard. So the, you can't read the characters and the alphabet because they're, they're different. So it's almost like impossible to learn. Whereas, you know, I lived in Brazil and you can kind of like learn some words and read them. And, and so it was, it's such a different environment than Canada in terms of like, they're almost polar opposites where Canadians are kind of like robots, very reserved and Israelis are so passionate, you know, whether, whether it's like anger, fiery, or just love, they're like so expressive of emotion. So you like put those together and they're so different. And so, so I was out there um, on my own and I had been doing like Tim Ferriss style, you know, headspace meditations into it and curious, but no real practice. And I didn't have the money to come home during uh, the Christmas break. And so, you know, it's, I ran into someone at a bar who was just like, Hey man, if you meditate, like Vipassana meditation, and this is, you know, now, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years ago. And, uh, it's like, Oh, Vipassana meditation, never heard of it. So it's 10 hours per day, you know, 10 day retreat, hundred hours of silence, um, intense 
schedule, no talking, no looking people in the eyes. Okay, that sounds cool. Maybe I should try that. You know, I kind of will try anything and that'll be a good way to start the new year. And so I ended up doing this alone in, in Israel. And that was the first time, I think in, I don't know, it was probably 28 or 29 or something like that. It was the first time in 28 years where I went deep into like noticing my thoughts, becoming aware. And what happens after three days, four days, five days is you realize like, I'm thinking the same things all the time, you know, and, and like, where are these emotions coming from? And so what starts to come up is like, hey, why don't I love myself? Or like, why did I treat myself this way? And you, you see your life play like a movie. It's, and it's super boring and it's super tough and it's physically demanding. And it's not great at times, but these moments come where you see your life like a movie and you start to think like, hey, where has this got me to? And why do I feel this way? And it was the first time I'd really like consciously examined my mind. So that I would say, open the door to like all these other practices. It's actually coincidentally where I learned about psychedelic medicines also. And then I I'd use psychedelics in the university for fun. It was the first time I had learned about using them for something more. And so somebody at that retreat invited me to do LSD like two weeks later and then ayahuasca in Israel. And so that path uh, then started, but that was the first time I'd had experience of like my own mind and thought. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, lots to go in there. Um, but before just a, a quick acknowledgement, which is like, there, there was a, do you remember the website Summit eCards? Did you ever come across that one? And anyway, it was like all these joke eCards, a lot of them hilariously funny. Uh, but one of them was a Passover eCard, which was I'm pretty sure gefilte fish is the reason that most people fear Jews. Um, and so you can only imagine what it's like going to Israel with probably not a whole lot of grounding and like, you know, too much Jewish culture, certainly Israeli culture and Hebrew culture, which aren't necessarily the same, a lot of overlap either. But I, I recognize that uh, that must have been a, a massive thing for you. And I do want to go into the conversation of fear uh, a little bit more. But before we do that, let's let's continue the narrative of so you go to Israel, do the Vipassana, you start to become aware of thoughts, get introduced to LSD, ayahuasca, take us from there to you know now and, and the founding of what was once called Inward Breathwork, uh, now Othership. Um, take us through the rest of that story. Yeah, so the, the psychedelic experience was like the next unlock. And so those first two experiences were powerful, but they weren't, you know, it was one tab of LSD and, and the ayahuasca was like very light dose uh, in, in Israel. And, and so it was like, whoa, this is really interesting. Like what is happening? I feel different. And so it led me to start doing research. And this is pre like how to change your mind. It's not like on every podcast. It's not, you know, it's still kind of, this is a weird thing to do. And so I find out about, you know, ayahuasca and addiction. And after those first few times, I was still using drugs and alcohol, not to the, the same, but, but still like, okay, this is a problem. And before I do anything with my career relationships, I want to solve this problem. And so I, I you know, I'd learn about psychedelics and addiction. I book like the most hardcore jungle excursion in Peru with like one friend who ends up coming with me and I'm telling people about it. And they're not oh man, you're doing psychedelics. They're like, what are you talking about? Like, you're going to do more drugs in like this random jungle. Like you're crazy. And I was like, okay, whatever. I'm just going to do it. You know, I'm going to take it really seriously. I did like the 14 day diet. I, I did some psychotherapy before I wrote down this intention of like, I never want to use cocaine again. So go into the jungle and it was like hardcore, like, you know, Iquitos, Peru, uh, like a river boat randomly, like deep into the jungle. There's a Maloka, some netted 
huts on stilts. And <laughs> there's one like funny story there. I'll be quick about it. But we're doing Cambo to start the ceremony. And it's like me and my friend, and we don't know anything about this stuff at this time. And so I do the Cambo and I take like three of them. And for some people, it causes a seizure. And so for me, I start to feel immediately sick and my body starts shaking. I go somewhere else completely. And I just like wake up and I'm going, oh, and I look into my friend's eyes and he's next. And this is the first thing we do. And I just imagine him like didn't really want to come in the jungle. He's looking at me seizuring white as a ghost, like, holy shit. Like, you know, just like, I want to leave this place now. And so we end up doing four ayahuasca experiences and it was like a really strong brew. Like the space I went to was specifically for people who were struggling with you know, suicidal ideation, sexual assault, uh, d- deep disease, deep addiction. And so it was the energy of these experiences, these group experiences is quite different depending on who's, who's doing them. And so people were like screaming and like, like losing their minds. And so for me, it was really hard. That experience was kind of the next transitionary point. It's where these moments came up of me as a kid being bullied of my mom uh, yelling at me, um, not in a mean way, but just this is kind of the first time I'd felt fear. And then of this need to be rebellious. So I remembered smoking my first cigarette and I was like, it was to be cool. Like there was 12 year old kids at school, like smoking and I, like older kids. And I was like, yeah, was like Robbie, you want some? I was like, yeah, I do. And like, cause I thought it was cool. And then I, I realized like, okay, I'm 28 now, you know, like this isn't fucking cool anymore. Like who cares what people think? So there was this whole moment of, I thought drugs and alcohol were cool from like a very young age. So it kind of brought me back to these experiences. I processed them and then let them go. And honestly, when I returned from that experience for like six months, maybe three to six months, I'd never had a craving again. And because it was that important, it was like a reset. It was like a superpower turbocharge of willpower to like make change. And then in that space, and this just happened luckily. And so I met my wife who's like, you know, dietitian, worked at a hospital, nutritionist, like Ben Greenfield, Dave Asprey, all the stuff she starts teaching me about. Our second date was in a sauna. We got engaged in a sauna. That's how I learned about like the sauna and ice bath was through her. So, so, so that's like one piece of why othership is so important. It's like one thing I learned was like community and good people in your life that inspire you. And that was her. She's like my rock. Like without her, I'd probably be dead. And then, um, so saw that happen. And then the person I went to the ayahuasca with was into Ethereum really early on. And so, you, you know, probably Ryan. So he's founded Vine Ventures, big crypto guy. And he was like, hey, man, you know, he's like one of my, my best friends, best man at my wedding. He's like, come out to San Francisco and like, check out this Ethereum thing. You've worked in tech. It's cool. And from the ayahuasca, I learned like, you know what? I don't care about money right now. And like, like why don't you try and just be around really good people? So that was the lesson I learned was like, spend your life around people with good energy that are excited. And so I went to San Francisco and like, people were so excited. These coders from Stanford, like crypto professors, hackers, people that wanted to take down the government, like this whole group of just really excited and super nice people. And you could feel the early energy that this is special, that people care. And so I did that and I I worked there for for four years. Um, I ended up just running events, sleeping on Ryan's couch in San Francisco, running events every night, developer meetups, going to conferences, interviewing people about like how to help them. And I just worked for free for, for six months, like living on this guy's couch helping out his fund. And then I got a job at Ethereum. Uh, and then that like changed my life. I was paid in, in Ether. And for the first time I started to feel like, wow, I'm value add. I'm successful. I'm like, I'm, I can do this. Cause all my experiences before were like finance, washing out, company failed, 
And then I started to see like, wow, I actually have some skills. Like people want to listen to what I say and this product's exploding and this community's doing great. And, and so I started to feel like before that I had nightmares about investment banking and I'd be getting like stuff thrown at me. I'd be getting fired and like I'd wake up like, holy shit. And so all of a sudden I'm like, wow, I'm actually like skilled. I feel good about myself. I'm making money, getting paid in ETH. It's exploding. And so I went from two years before drug addict, you know, living in this basement, broke, feeling like a failure to like amazing wife. We weren't married at the time, but amazing wife, girlfriend, a great friend group, making money, feeling successful. And then I really wanted to teach everyone these things. And I, I credit it to like meditation and psychedelics, but it was really hard to teach people meditation. None of my friends could get into it. And then psychedelics are amazing tools, but they're also like, and this may be controversial for this podcast, but just psychedelic use alone, it's not going to create behavior change. And I've just seen 99% of the time it, it doesn't. And so, you know, for people struggling with PTSD uh, and different uh, nervous system dysregulation, yes, yes, you can have immediate help. But for the average person, if you want to make behavioral change, there's like so much more involved. And what I found was like, 20 of my friends struggling with drugs were like, yo, I want to, I want to, what happened to you? I'm going to go do ayahuasca. And they did. And they came home for three weeks. I'm, I changed my life. I'm on top of the world. And I'm like, no, like right back to where they started. And the experience was still beautiful, but it didn't create the lasting change. So I'm like, Hey, well, what the hell? Why does this stuff work for me? Like what, what about it is like, is can be used for others to create behavioral change. And then I kind of, you know, worked on that for, for years testing stuff. And what we found, so, so that was the next like kind of transition point of, okay, you know, I've totally changed my life uh, and this stuff is really great. How do I teach it to others in an accessible way? Okay. So now we're at this point, like I'm feeling great. I'm living in Toronto and I was always going to bathhouses because I don't drink. And so, you know, we started, it was the second date with my wife, Southwestern bathhouse in Mississauga. It's in this like little strip mall. In uh, San Francisco, I went to Archimedes, again, like a Russian spot kind of outside of the city. We lived in Berlin and we would go to Vibali, like beautiful space. And so I got obsessed every weekend to be a conference and be like, hey, let's all go to the bathhouse. And bathhouse, for people who don't know, is just like sauna, cold plunge, usually some type of restaurant, oftentimes the Russian, Eastern European uh, proprietors. Sometimes they're like spas as well, like Scandinav for, for listeners in Canada, thermal spa with many saunas cold plunges, hot tub, massage. So we'd just be doing this all the time. And I'm like, wow, this ice bath, especially because the ice increases dopamine two and a half times, which is similar to cocaine. So for me, it was so stimulating. I'm like, wow, I just feel amazing. I feel so alive. And it was our first date. And then, you know, usually on a first date, you're nervous. And you do the ice bath and get out. And it's just like, wow, we're just sharing everything. And so I'm like, this is literally the best social experience I'm having every single time I go. And then I wake up and feel fantastic after. And so I do the Wim Hof training. I get really interested. I listen to his podcast. I start doing breath work. I do one of his breathwork sessions every day on YouTube for like an entire year and just start teaching people this. So, you know, in my backyard, my water didn't go cold enough. And so we build an ice bath, me and five friends, my five co-founders now. And every night in the summer, for a whole summer, we just host like 10, 12, 15 people. We buy ice, we put it in the thing. And we start learning how to guide people with our own methods. So we add sound bowls, essential oils, different meditations, and have a fire after and realize like this is it. This is the best way to create 
community. And so that grows to a 300 person WhatsApp group of just like cold, I think the first one was called Cold Warriors. And so just people coming that like loved it and we're hanging out every night, wicked chats, and it, it gets cold, so September in Canada. And it's like, oh, what are we going to do? It's too cold for the ice bath now. So I have a garage space on Geary in Delaware and in, in Toronto. And we put an ice bath and a sauna and a tea room in this little, like, I don't know, maybe spent 60 grand on it. And right away, like people just start flocking to it. And so we put up a little like bootstrapped website. Um, we called it inward. We asked customers like, Hey, what should we call it? People are like inward. We're like, yeah, that's cool. Go inward. So we have a space people are coming to and they start paying. And we realized we're like, well, we're doing like 40, 50 people a day here just through word of mouth. And what really started next was classes. And so it was this idea that you could use the sauna and the cold for classes, which nobody in the world was really doing. And so, you know, anger release where you would turn out the lights in the sauna, think about a moment of anger and scream, you know, a couple's class where you'd have an ice bath together and do an eye gaze and like share, you know, a time you supported each other empowerment class where you do a visualization of like yourself 10 feet tall. And, and we found that the hot and cold would shut down the mind and allow you to go deeper. And that's when we thought like, wow, this is really cool. Like people are becoming friends, they're dating, they're hanging out. And, and it was clear that like, there was something here that needed to be in every city. Um, and so fast forward here and we can dive into anything that you want, but the, you know, basically really short, we COVID hit, we're like, fuck, we can't do this anymore. So we started doing the breath work we were doing in the space online on Zoom and hundreds of people were joining and we made it you know, action-packed with like really good electronic music. So it felt like a dance party. So people at home, like it was more, more entertainment than wellness. It was fun. And people were like, yo, I love this. I love this. It's so cool. And so we put that into uh, a course and then people were using it every day. So we made an app. So it was all like the whole other ship was just organic backyard hacking together for years. And then during COVID, we signed a lease on Adelaide and built this space, like 50 person sauna, four ice baths, um, tea room where there's classes like you went to, free flows like you went to and social parties. And then it became clear that like, wow, a lot of these people are changing their behavior. Like what I set out to do was, hey, I want my friends who are doing drugs to be able to stop. And now 20, 25 people are sober who struggle with alcohol. That's just like one small, like we just started four months ago. And so it became clear that to create behavioral change, you need like a physical space that people go to often. You need a practice daily to create space. And we settled on a breathwork app because it was just more accessible than meditation. And then you need community. And so we have a giant discord. So like, yeah, the experience for you coming is great. But if you came with and met a friend, you're like part of that community now. And so the goal now, the vision is in every city in North America, there's one of these community spaces, there's an app and there's a way to make friends. So when you do your psychedelics or meditation, you come back and you can make change uh, and join a new, new group. So that's kind of where we are now. Thank you for sharing that story. And, uh, you know, it, it, it really struck me when you just said right at the end there that like 20 to 25 of your friends are like off drugs. I really hit home for some reason. I've never struggled with addiction. I have friends who I've had, but whatever you said there in that moment, the energy of it really touched me. So, I mean, hey, thank you for sharing that story. It's uh, quite quite the story. And B, thank you for doing the work you're doing, which is amazing. A lot of things I want to touch on, but I'll start with the, the last one that came up first. 
Are you cognizant about how much it sounds exactly like church or synagogue or a religious kind of experience in, in terms of what you're creating when you talk about space, community, and, and a practice? Like that is, that is pretty much the definition of religion, which I think is actually amazing. I mean, re- religion has a very terrible kind of reputation in so many ways, particularly over the last couple of weeks, depending on your you know political and world views. But uh, it's nice to think about religion in a much more constructive way, which in many ways is what I think you're doing. But has that ever kind of landed with you? Yeah, my favorite book that I've read in the last like two years is called Religion for Atheists. And it's uh, this author, Alan de Botton, And it's really about, hey, you know, there's this massive movement towards atheism. And so it's really easy to say, like, I don't believe in the supernatural. Religion has done all these terrible things. But the reality is, there are so many things over thousands of years. Like religion was basically created to keep communities together. And a lot of these rules that they have are so that people can live in groups. And in a, in a time before there was like law and police and all this kind of stuff. And so the way they create community is by far over thousands of years, the best in the world. And this whole book is about, it's like a template for building a movement of what is good. And so I've read this book like so many times and I'm just like, this is amazing. This is what people need. It's what they want. And it talks about why people are more lonely than ever before. And so like hundreds of years ago, we actually had to work together. So it'd be very common, like one, there wasn't social safety net. So if somebody asked for help, it'd be very common that you would help them. And then you would have to ask others for help. And it would be very common that you worked together with people to like build farms or an agriculture or factories, whatever. And all of that has changed. So it's not super weird. If someone on the street came up and was like, Hey, can you help me with this? You're like, kind of like, you know, you feel weird about it and you don't, you know, it's, so we're so isolated based on technology. And so I've read this book and it's just so clear to me, like even universities used to teach social sciences and they do still, but it used to be like, you're learning through history, poetry, literature, how to behave as an adult in society. And now a university is like, what kind of professional job can I have to make money? And so the idea of like learning about emotions and being a contributing member of society is it's, it's kind of gone. And it's so, you know, we're so bombarded by advertisements and consumerism. And so I think this idea of, it doesn't have to be religion in those terms, but the idea of creating a movement and real community that inspires you, that's like my drive is that how do we make that stuff cool and fun and accessible in a new way for people who've lost those feelings? So it's really cool that you mentioned that. It's also something I'm like absolutely obsessed with. Uh, and then if people want to learn more, like this book will blow your mind. I, I will make a point of reading it because like deep down when I think about what my motivation for field trip is, it's not access to psychedelics. I mean, I think it's very much in line with exactly what you're talking about, which is, you know, I think I've told this story before, but we had a reporter come through and go through a ketamine experience in New York. And um, she was talking about the experience and shared her experience with me. And she was saying that after experience, which was her first larger dose with ketamine, she was looking at her fingers and found them profound, right? Which sounds kind of idiotic, you know, if you're looking at it from a outside perspective, but that is kind of the quintessential moment of what hope to create a field trip. Certainly there's a community piece to it, but the connection just to the profound, the connection to something more or that not all is just as it seems, um, I think is one of the most powerful things, right? It creates a, an awareness of the connectedness of it all or the significance of it all or the insignificant of, insignificance of it all, but it all has a meaning at some point. Whereas 
in our modern neoliberal world, which is there's been many things to be grateful for. It enables you and me to be sitting across from a screen and not in the same place doing this. So lots of people can listen to it around the world, but it's totally struck out meaning. Like meaning has gone out the door. I don't know if you've taken a look at uh, Recapture the Rapture by Jamie Wheel, but totally on point as well. So, you know, it's nice to, it's nice to be aligned and, and work you know, really in parallel and in partnership with you and, and trying to create this in, in different ways and help people to access some of these experiences. What, what is your personal view on kind of like the spiritual component of it as well? We're talking about religion again. It's like, we don't have to use that word, but like there's a spirituality that goes with it. There's an outsideness um, or, you know, the isness of it all. What's your kind of view on it? Um, you know, does that is that important to you for where you are in your journey, or is your journey still a little bit more grounded in kind of the objective kind of reality of things? So I think there's two ways to think about it. One is like the othership view, and the other is is my view. And so the othership view is listen, we're trying to be accessible to as many people as possible, many who haven't found spirituality important. And so to do that, we let the experiences speak for themselves. So if you have a breathwork experience, an ice bath experience, a deep, dark sauna experience, you don't need to say this is spiritual. You, you feel it like that you can, you talk about that isness, like it's just, that's what it is. And so I think in that way, it's an invitation. You know, if you want to talk about energies, fine. If you want to like, however you want to experience this, we're inviting you and letting you make the decision. And then we're basing everything we do in science. So, you know, like this is real. It's supported. It's having these benefits and emotion. And what I find about emotion that's really interesting is it's universal. So everybody knows what anger and guilt and shame and fear and compassion, like we know what those things are. And so helping people process emotion in a way that science backs seems to be the gateway. And so for other ship, we're saying like, okay, you know, here's a container that you're stepping into. This is what's important to us. And then we're saying also we have values as well. And so from a value standpoint, we say inspiring awe, which is that isness. And we just call it inspiring awe. And how we explain it to people is feeling like you did when you're a child. It's like, oh yeah, I remember playing hide and seek and it was so fun. Or I remember that first roller coaster or, you know, my first like time my parents took me to do X and it was, you know, seeing that movie about with Marvel character and it was magic and playing a video game. Like when it's just so that awe and wonder that like isness. So that's how we explain that. And then we say it's also building belonging, um, which is, you know, doing this in community. And then we say it's um, cellular commitment, which is the idea that it's actually hard as well, because being human, our nature, we, we feel envy and fear and greed and all these, you know, kind of like we'll call them negative emotions, even though they're just part of, of being. And so the cellular commitment is the work that like, you know, psychedelic ceremonies are hard. Like all this stuff is, takes discipline. So it's kind of those three things create the baseline and that's sort of the othership view. So whether it's spiritual or not, we just invite you to make of it what you want, as long as you know you vibe with those guidelines. And then my personal view, I always have been like really skeptical. So interested in meditation and have experienced, I don't know, probably a hundred psychedelic ceremonies where it's a cave. Clearly, we don't know anything. This is wild. But then the skeptical mind comes back the next day and was like, no, that didn't really happen. You know, like I remember doing an ayahuasca ceremony. I'm like, okay, hey, this shaman is magic. And I went into another world and there's no question there was demons there that were like, per- like that is 100% I just experienced this. And then three days later, it's like, no, no, you know, I don't believe it. No, like the mind is so strong. So there's a skeptical part of me. 
Um, and that's just a struggle of like, how do I become more, more open? Like there's all these hurts and fears and traumas and rejections from being young that are like closing that ability to like fully open my heart. And so I know there's value um, and I've had these experiences, but it's just a struggle of like, you know, how spiritual or how like present am I and open to these things? So that's a personal battle that I'm like working through, but don't, don't have any answers at this, at this stage, despite having many transcendent experiences and reading many books and doing a lot of work and stuff, still feel I'm just like a rookie on that path. Totally hear you a hundred percent aligned, both in like the viewpoint to the same thing with field trip, which is like, we don't want to make, want to be like one woo, which is like not woo woo, but one <laughs> woo is like yeah. conversation, you know, mm-hmm. say like that is welcome here. It's not a requirement. Um, and then where you land on it, like it, you're, you're accepted regardless. And, and that's like, really cool. and then personally, I'm in the exact same place, which is I've had those transcendent experiences. Uh, and, and now actually like it's getting more challenging the more I lean into exploring the spiritual side of things. Because as you lead into the science, particularly around quantum physics and all that kind of stuff, it starts to really, really break down. I don't know if... Uh, I started reading, even though, and encourage everyone to read it if you really have some time and attention to give to it. But the case against reality by Donald Feldman, whose basic thesis is that our experience of reality I haven't got through all of it. So where I am right now, but our experience of reality is not necessarily reflective of what reality actually is. It's been honed by natural selection to design us to survive. But that doesn't mean it's real. It just means that's what we've evolved to perceive and that there's a whole level of reality that we're not perceiving. And you miss that with like all the spiritual conversations and it, it is truly a, a mind fuck. But I, I appreciate you being very honest about that. I'm exactly in the same place, which is sometimes like you get back to like, no, it seems pretty objective about what's going on right now. Um, I guess the, the one you know thing on that point is like you can there is no you're never going to get an answer to that in your entire life no matter how hard you go and how much research you do and so for me it was like okay what can I tie back from these experiences into life and what stuck with me and why like religion is interesting is because it's a code of ethics and so like am I a good dad you know am I a good husband am I like showing up in my community am I helping people do I feel good about what I'm doing in life and so regardless of how reality is or the spiritual component or what I believe in the afterlife and God's like in the right now, am I like, you know, showing up? And, and so again, that's so subjective of like, what is a good person? So people might be like, Oh, what's this guy talking about? Fine. But that's yeah. kind of like the measure I'm looking is just like, look, five years ago, seven years ago, 10 years ago, I was super selfish doing all these things for like the wrong reasons, not a good person in high integrity. And now I'm like significantly better than that. Still a long ways to go. But so that's kind of, for me, what I'm thinking is, do these experiences make me feel, I guess, my friend group improving? Am I being better to my parents? And, and that is enough for me. And if I'm like kind of improving on that field, it's made me happier. So that's kind of my thought process. But again, like weekly held and who knows. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, it's totally on point, which is so the other thing to see, and you may have seen it, but six, seven, eight years ago when you were like living without integrity, as, as you said, it's like you're also seeking validation from external sources, right? So actually, you were probably living in perfect integrity because your thesis was those outside things would make me feel good and give me self-worth and all that kind of stuff. And now you're living in, in, in accordance with your own values. And that's perfectly consistent with like self-love, which is the values I create for myself and hold myself to are the basis by which you know I hold myself 
as as a worthwhile person. And 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 that's the only sustainable form of validation is the stuff you take internally, which is deep down and all about self-love. So it's actually a perfectly consistent kind of shift in, in worldview based on on the journey that you've shared. God, there's so much, so much there and and so many ways to to go. But one of the things that you touched on and and I want to explore it because I'm curious to hear your thoughts about it was your conversation about fear. And 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 it ties pretty closely with what was my other question, which was about failure. You know, I had the quote from, and anybody who's listened to this has probably heard me say this many times, but it always bears repeating. There's this great quote from Tom Robbins who said, so you think you're a failure, do you? Well, you probably are. What's wrong with that? In the first place, if you have any sense at all, you must have learned by now that we pay just as dearly for our triumphs as we do for our defeats. Go ahead and fail, fail, but fail with wit. Fail with grace, fail with style. A mediocre failure is as insufferable as a mediocre success. Embrace failure, seek it out, learn to love it. That may be the only way any of us will be free. It's a lot easier said than done. Um, you know, especially high achieving people um, like yourself, like my myself, whose value for a lot part of our lives was on success in a much more conventional kind of side of things. So Talk about fear. It sounds like you had something to share about that. And then talk about fear of failure and how you've kind of dealt with that. Because I, I wake up every day and even though things are going well at Field Trip, we're still a startup. You know, We still live in a perpetual state of existential crisis. And it, it's there every day of like, if this fails, what does it say about me? Um, and it's so hard to disconnect it. I'd love to hear your thoughts about how you've work through it on your own. Yeah. So fear is an interesting one because it's kind of like a, like a window. And so imagine really, really, you know, imagine max fear and the visualization is the tiniest possible window that you can only see through it. If like you put it right up to your eye and you can kind of squint, you know, like you're looking through a telescope and, and, and that's your, your life. And so every time you're afraid, it's going to limit you. Like, I'm not going to ask for that promotion. I'm, I, you know, I can't do this because what are my parents going to think? Oh, I'm not going to ask that girl out because she's going to say no. Uh, I'm not going to try that, you know, new sport because I'm going to suck at it. And so it's just fear is is limiting. And so I think of it as like the smallest possible lens to look through. And so when I was younger, it was like, oh, you know, you, you're you're just self limiting all the time because you're nervous. I think the two innate fears are like fear of failure, fear of rejection. So it's interesting you mentioned failure. So those are the two. It's like all related to I'm not good enough. I'm not going to make it. What are these people going to think of me? These are like common, going back to emotion, common human needs. And so when I was thinking about fear, it's like, okay, well, you know, if I'm, if I'm just going to go and do these things I'm afraid of, then how does my life open? And what you start to practice is this, is this like sitting in discomfort. And so fear is, you know, discomfort is a form of fear. And so, you know, you're doing a 10 day meditation retreat quite hard. You're sitting in these spaces, you're facing these demons, you're doing, you know, high dose psychedelics, same deal. You are um, going and doing, I did a public speaking course, like a Dale Carnegie thing, because I was nervous about talking in front of people. I went on a whole bunch of dates because I was like nervous to talk to girls. And so it's just kind of all of a sudden by putting yourself in that discomfort, your optionality of your life increases. So now where we had that small window, I've never used this metaphor, I just made it up. So if it's stupid, that's fine. But now imagine like you're in your house and you're looking out and like your entire you can see the entire city, your floor to ceiling windows, massive view. You can see the lake, you can see the sunshine. And it's like, that is my life now, right? It's endless possibility because I'm not holding myself back with fear. So that's how I looked at fear. And again, it's at times in your life when these things are important. So for me, when I was 30, 
when I started to make these changes, that was it. It was like, okay, fear is the anchor. What's on the other side? If I'm, if I'm like, yo, let's just explore this and go and do these things. And it just started to give me the power that like, I wasn't afraid anymore. Like I used to be afraid at work in my first business to call and ask for help. And I, I like get on a phone with someone I'm like, oh, I don't want to ask the person. Like it's going to be, I'm going to sound stupid. I don't know what I'm doing. What are they going to think? And like now the first thing, like in crypto, I didn't know anything. I'm not an engineer. I had to ask the dumbest questions. I would make a list in my notes. And just when the engineers would be driving, I would ask them the stupidest questions, you know? And so, cause I didn't care, but what that means is I'm going to learn way faster. And so, you know, for other ship, if we're going to launch in New York, I'll talk to 10 people that have like built a space in New York. And then what's the red flags, you know? Who should I use as an architect? And so the fastest way to learn is to put yourself out there and say, like, I don't know. And I don't care what you think because I'm not afraid of that anymore. So it, it really, the way I look at fear is the more you go at your fears and, and hell, like, you know, going out because you're afraid to fight and like fighting 10 guys at a bar, it's not, <laughs> that's not healthy. So it's kind of how can I face my fears in a contained environment and push the level of discomfort I'm comfortable with. And for me now, after like eight years of that practice, I can face a lot of discomfort um, before I say no to something. And so, yeah, that's just like, you know, I've been able to start a business, been able to like live in all these countries, try all these new things. Um, so I think that was one of the biggest turning points for me was that fear, um, conquering fears by like expanding the window. And then the second piece you mentioned was the, the fear of failure specifically. And so that's a really interesting one because for my startup, two years, three years of just like gut wrenching, oh my God, this is going to fail. What am I going to do for money? What are people going to think of me? Like this exact same feeling you mentioned over and over and over. And what you realize when you fail and when you fail early is the fear of failure is so much worse than the failure itself because like fear and hope are sort of opposites. I've said this before on podcasts, but when you have hope, things change. And so for your startup, like I knew it was going to fail. Like two years in, I'm like, there's no, there's just no way this is going to be successful. And so it was like waiting for it to fail every day. Finally, it fails. And like two weeks later, and it's like, it wasn't two weeks, but a month, you know, later. And it's like, oh, well, I can look for other jobs. I'm like, man, maybe I'm excited about this thing in Israel. Or maybe, you know, like failure is just not sustainable forever. So like it happens, but like, guess what? You just find something new the next week and the week after that. and then you mentioned this in the quote, it's like the learnings you take from it. And so now it's just like, okay, if other ship fails, well, like I learned how to build a community and wellness and get on podcasts and tell my story. And like, that'll just go to the next thing. And so the more you fail and the more you fail early, the less fear you, you have around it. Cause you just realize like all these things in your head, like, I'm not like, Oh my God, Ronan and field trip. Like it failed, you know, like, or, or thinking like none of your friends are thinking that none of your family's thinking that it's totally in your own head. So that's how I think about failure is like, it's not actually sustainable over long periods of time because eventually you will succeed and that the failure itself creates space for hope, which then you don't even care about the old, like, I don't think about Romley and be like, oh man, I failed. I don't even care at all anymore. You know, yeah. it was just like a learning experience. Totally. And, and, and that reminds me about New York. I got to connect you with my friend, uh, Sam who runs the maid hotel and is great about creating experiences and super well connected and all that kind of stuff. I think it'll be a great resource for you as you're building out other ship and work and and um you're totally right about the fear of failure. Um I guess one question you know I always struggle with is like especially as founders, like we push and we push and we push and we push and we start from the odds being like 98% or maybe 99% against us. And we push and we push and we push and we push. 
was at any point where you, you like, do you regret, I guess, not kind of raising your hands earlier and saying like, this is going to be a failure instead of spending three years on it, I'll spend one year on it and like, just make that decision. Cause like, it's so ingrained into, I think being an entrepreneur, but a hustle culture of like never stopping until like it's dead or you're dead and, and nothing in between. Um, and just curious to know your thoughts on that. No, I was so naive in that Romley, like, oh, maybe it can work. And also afraid of, okay, if this fails, like I'm not going to have a salary. So what am I even going to do? Like, I just knew nothing. Like that was really my first job. And so I was learning everything and had no idea of what it would actually even take to be successful. So I didn't even notice that like, actually, this is just never going to work. And so by the time it failed, it was just clearly done. Like it was out of money. <laughs> so it was just kind of like, okay. So, uh, but, but also, you know, you can't, that's like 10 years ago now. So you can't really, um, like, I'm really happy with where I am. So maybe that stuff wouldn't have happened if I quit earlier. So I don't really think about it like that, but I would say now, uh, you know, I've been an entrepreneur for 15 years. I probably started four or five companies. And so you can, you can, you can feel it, you know? And so if I was like getting up and I didn't have any energy doing what I was going to do, I would quit and I wouldn't feel bad about that. I think being in Romley for two years wasn't the optimal thing to ride it into the ground. And for me, like for entrepreneurs listening, I didn't give a shit about that business, like roaming prices, like who cares, you know? So it's even worse because like at least for my business, if I'm nervous or feel overwhelmed, I'll go into the space. I'll look at people's faces. One, I want to be in there because I love it. And then two, I just love being around the people and seeing them. So I would do this no matter what, because it's what I do for fun. Like I actually make breathworks for fun on the weekend. So I don't even need to work. Like I would just do that. So that's kind of like, you know, when you're doing something that you don't care about and it's not working, it's kind of, yeah, just just quit. That would be my, my gut feeling is don't put yourself through like years of this thing. Cause you feel like you owe it to somebody cause you don't and life is short. Yeah, no, that uh, totally resonates. And, and Dan, if you're out there um, listening to this podcast, it's good advice for you as well. Is that, is that related to somebody in the cannabis space? Not in the cannabis space. And, and, yeah. and he, he, he's uh, in the sports industry and, and dealing with some stuff right now and struggling with a business that feels obliged to continue to carry the yoke of because he brought in investors, but he's like just uninspired by it and, and struggles with it day to day. I have so many friends who are in that situation and have this conversation. And then like, honestly, maybe it's counterintuitive advice, but like investors, they back to you, like who they, you don't owe them anything. Like you put together a deck, you tried your best and like, you don't owe them anything. And like literally, and that's like having friends and family have in, invested in businesses. The reality is people make their decisions and they're not, it's not your responsibility. Like if you tried your best and you stop and you give the money back because you don't think it's going to work. Like I would never, as someone who invests in, and does tons of angel deals and like has invested in VC funds and worked in that space, I would never, you know, if you did something dishonest and stole the money, different story. But as an investor, I don't think it's on the entrepreneurs not guaranteeing a return. They're guaranteeing they're going to take a crack at it. And if they don't think it's going to be successful and don't like it, like, you know, it's partly on you as the investor to assess that when it's happening, you know? So I, I don't, uh, I think fully founder friendly on that one and just say like, don't, you know, who cares what they think is kind of my, my vibe. <laughs> I totally agreed. And, and it may come as a surprise to some people because like I've shared with these people, but like, you know, even if field trip turns out to be a failure, like I actually struggle with the idea of like, 
what am I competent at? Like, I really don't, if I'm not doing field trip, I literally have no idea what I would be qualified to do after this. Uh, and, and that surprises people because people look, and if you look at my CV, it looks pretty impressive, I guess. Um, but like internally, a lot of the struggles I have is like, I, I don't even know what I'm good at. I don't even know what I could do if I wasn't doing this. Um, and, and so it's something I continue to struggle with. And, Another big area that I struggled with that I'm getting more comfortable with was like around fatherhood, which is I grew up you know, not having a dad present. My parents split up with when I was two. Apparently when I was seven, I told my dad I never wanted to see him again and and he listened. Um, and uh, and so when it came to having my own kids, you know, which is I knew I wanted them, I was really terrified of being like, I have no idea what it is to be a dad. Like I, I genuinely don't know what to do and it terrified me. Um, and you are in the process of soon to be coming, becoming a father and sharing that you were going to, I think you went to Holos and Costa Rica for a ceremony around that. I'd love to hear like thinking around that and what you're bringing to the table and, and, and the ceremony itself and, and what came up and, and what advice you'd give for existing dads or expectant dads, um, as, as they start to part of their journey. Yeah, so I actually have a lot to share here that I'm really excited about. So the ceremony hasn't actually happened yet. Um, okay. It's right. in, it's in it August, and so yeah, and so there was a couple things that were that really stuck with me. One was from our mutual friend Steve Rio, who's like ultimate legend, and so he was saying, "I'm kind of starting to ask people like, hey, what's it like to be a dad? You know, like exactly like you kind of don't know what to expect. So you're talking to friends who've gone through the process. What kind of products do I need? What should I do?" Should I be doing reading books, doing courses? I'm kind of like, you know, anal like that. And Steve just said, hey, all you really need is that first, you know, six months or three months, like the baby's nervous system. Whether this is true or not, I don't know. But he just said the baby's nervous system is so sensitive. You need to bring like a calm energy and presence. And that's what's most important. And so my wife heard that and we're like, dude, like I'm just drinking coffees, cranking Zoom meetings. I was smoking a vape, I quit. But earlier this year... And like tweaked out, like stimulated, working, pushing, because I just love what I'm doing. But like, that's not the energy you want to bring to like this new nervous system at all. And so I thought more about it. I reached out to a friend, Jesse from Dimensions and Holos, Jesse Hansen, uh, amazing, amazing guy. She said, hey, man, I really want to do something for, you know, prepare to be a dad and like reset the nervous system and just before the baby's born. So he connected me with Holos. They put together this incredible like fatherhood retreat. So we booked out the entire retreat center. Um, it's got like, you know, a couple hours of prep about what it's going to take to open the inner child, have full love, move from like the primary role to supporting role. So like nine hours of psychotherapy in advance, three ayahuasca ceremonies, one cave initiation where you like sleep in this cave and come out through the waterfall. And I know you've been there, so I haven't been there. So I don't know much about it yet. We just put together the, the process and then it's a whole bunch of people who are going to be in the baby's life. So my sisters, you know, a bunch of people that live in Toronto that have been friends with for a long time that will like be part. And the idea is just to celebrate, to create this container of, Hey, I'm at a transition point in my life, which is where I always found psychedelics were really powerful. It's kind of like, I don't know what to do with work, relationship, grief, loss, like these moments of I'm changing. And the fears of, for me was like, you know, I'm selfish and that's, common. And it's like, I care about, you know, am I healthy? What's my career like? And I want to move to letting go. And it's probably going to happen naturally, but to more of a giving, like, Hey, I'm here now for somebody else. 
Um, and so I just wanted to, to, to like really sit in that and like give it some, some time to like, okay, yeah, like I'm, I'm, this is important to me. The other thing, so that was one thing that's like kind of why I wanted to do it. And then the other thing that came up was like, you carry the trauma of your parents and whether th- this is where you get to like spirituality, like science, all this kind of stuff, you know? And, but I kind of believe it, that the traumas they had are like genetically passed to you and I ha- and whether it's environment or, or, or not, like I have a lot of things like this lack of safety I mentioned, you know, this like kind of social anxiety. And so I was like, okay, if I can go and like just hammer out three deep, super deep, hardcore sessions to like try to let go of some of these patterns so I don't pass them on. I'm like pretty scared of ayahuasca. It always, especially like the deep ones. It's And, you know, for people who are big psychedelics users, fine. I'm, I'm happy to admit, like I, I get afraid at high doses. Like I'll be like quite scared. And especially how tweaked out my nervous system is now from like years of just working so hard. So I'm like, holy shit, what's going on? I'm like kind of like sweating, even thinking about it, but it's like, hey, I'm going to do this for my son, like to be a good dad, you know? And so it just felt like it was going to take me right out of this do, do, do mentality and be present. And so the whole goal around it is reset the nervous system, really think about what I want to bring to fatherhood. Kind of like you said, you're like, Hey, I want to, I'm going to be a dad now. What do I do? You know? And so kind of create some space and then taking a month of paternity leave, just no phone and like fully be there and be present. Cause I'd also heard, I've heard a couple things like, you know, the dad doesn't do anything at the start anyways. But then I've heard from other people like, no, like you only get this experience once right twice, three times. So I just felt like now just seemed like a good time to just be as fully into it as possible. So, so that was the impetus. I'm super stoked. Holos looks absolutely incredible. Team like has been phenomenal for creating this thing for me from scratch with like this intent. All I said was like, Hey, this is my intention. And they built this like entire thing. So I'm, I'm like terrified, but also so excited about like how I'll show up then for the, for the birth. So that's kind of where I'm at now. I'm happy to do another discussion, like maybe after and share like each day, what happened, what came up. And, and so it's, uh, there's a couple of my friends who are also having babies coming. So it's kind of, and there's some women too. So it's like a mixture of, of people. So it's, it's cool. The it's kind of like, babies, maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, no women, no, 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 no women having babies. Uh, my wife's not, not taking the ayahuasca for those thinking about it either. So she's not traveling safe. We're not that in that realm of, but um yeah i'm I'm really uh feels like one of these things like an initiation right around birth you know and around death too like both are really powerful so i'm i'm stoked man yeah have you sat or have you sat like with the energy of it like one of the things that just came up was that i think people look to psychedelics to like show them the way or open their eyes about something or help them work through it but like what, when you sit with like being a, a father, like what, what is, what's coming up for you even right now? Like say, like one of the things for me that I've realized just to like help frame that question, because I realize it's very you know, broad question is like growing up, like I, I think I didn't really appreciate like it, even in how I told the story of like, I was a kid who was like trying to get through school to university, to law school, like get the job, do the thing. Right. And, uh, I didn't stop to really appreciate what it was to be a kid, like be playful. And like some of that got denied to me because of the circumstances of, of my early years and divorce and all that kind of stuff. And some of that I chose to like dispense with. It's so like one of the things that's coming up for me right now with my kids is like, I'm getting to like, 
and I'm even getting emotional thinking about it is like, be playful, like do all that play that I didn't let myself or didn't get access to as a kid. And, and it's awesome. It's super beautiful. And I'm just curious, like if there's anything coming up for you that's like, oh, this is what I'm really excited about. Well, I think for one is that the part of the exercise is like allowing the space and the psychedelics. I don't even, I'm not like asking questions in this case, like show me the way or, you know, th- this thing, it's just, they're a tool I'm using to reset the nervous system to like be present. And, and I think that's when they're best is like, you have a, a goal or something you're looking to learn and you use them in advance to create behavioral change. And so for me, it's like, it's going to be a beautiful experience. Absolutely. But it's to really after, like when I come back in that month and the baby's born just to be there, like no coffee, no phone, like, like bang on focused. And right now it's like really hard for me to stop just because I've been so stimulated. So like I wake up and if I go for a walk, I'm just thinking about like these 15 things with work. I want my coffee. It's like, it's, it's, so I'm trying to just like get rid of that pattern. That's the foremost thing. And then I haven't given a lot of time to what it's actually going to be like. Like you, you mentioned meaning and I think I'm so in fight or flight right now all the time. So, cause it's like, focus, get done, do but like being, you know, parasympathetic, it's like eating and sex and eye gazing and love and like feeling. And I just haven't been there in the last few, you know, since probably the pregnancy started. So I have these glimpses, but I really want to create the whole goal of this creating space to like be in that. And I think one fear that's come up is my dad works really hard and has been, and was like a role model for me. And so what my role model is, is success. And I don't necessarily want to pass that on uh, to my son. And so I'm worried because I love my career and it's like just peaking right now. It's like something I've been trying to build for 15 years to be successful. And now it's happening, but I wanted not like, it's, it's not the end of the day. It's not that important. And I know that, but I still have that programming. So the fear around it is like, you're just going to be working all the time in the same pattern that you like has caused you to do all these things you didn't want and like, be not yourself and get this validation. Like you, you pass that on. And so part of the ayahuasca was just to like start off on a tone of like be present. Um, so that, that I think is probably my biggest fear, but I'm also like pretty soft, like really soft, you know? So I see like, I love hugs. I love my wife so much. I'm like really vulnerable. And like, I've seen, I've been watching dads with their kids and like, my, so I was at Ryan's house or our mutual friend in Switzerland and his one-year-old boy just, you know, comes up, puts his hands up, looks at him, can't talk yet, has the soother in and just like, you know, and he picks him up and hugs him. And I'm like, holy shit. It's like, you're someone's superhero. So that thought of like the first time that my son's like, I love you, like, holy shit, you know? So I'm really excited for like what that means. Cause I also have trouble connecting with my heart. Like I get, oh, I'm not good enough. I got to work. I gotta, you know, I'm in this fight or flight, like I mentioned. So I think this is going to be like all of a sudden just heart exploding day after day. So that piece, I'm like, so it's exactly what I need in my life now to feel more fulfillment is like being of service. So I'm sitting, I'm like, I see those moments with like dads and babies and like, holy shit, like that's must feel incredible. Yeah. If I can close with one reflection back at you, it's like, I, I think you're already a tremendous success and I do include the conventional way that you may have picked up from your dad, but in every way that I think you want to be a success in the purest and most positive sense of the word, uh, you get an A plus from my perspective. You're, you're already doing it, man. So like just 
keep it up. And uh, it's it's an honor to like count you as a friend and be a part of your story and support you as you go through this journey and to have you on this podcast. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for uh, Othership and and all the amazing stuff that you're doing there and and everything you're bringing into this world. It's, it's really an amazing thing to watch. Thanks, Ronan. That was really fun, man. You're, you're an amazing interviewer. It's fun to like talk about actual personal stories and like answer these actual questions. Like it just makes the interview so much more enjoyable and flowing and cool than to like talk about stats and tactics. And so I, I really uh, had a good time and some of the stuff went deep, man. I was almost crying there at the end. So it was, it was really cool. I feel, I feel really good and, and happy and excited. So I, I appreciate you. Awesome, man. I, 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 you know, it is in some ways a, a goal of mine to like get men in particular, but anyone to come on the podcast to cry because I think one of the big things that's stuck in our society going back to the conversation about emotions is that we're not allowed to have them or show them. And it's like, no, we, we all have them. Like, let's stop pretending like we don't have them. And let's just like lay it out. And that's what moves people. And that's what touches people. And that's what causes people to change. So uh, so thank you for, for sharing that as well. Absolutely. In the novel Jitterbug Perfume by Tom Robbins, One of the protagonists is a character named Alabar, an ancient Slavic king who decides that he is not prepared to die and sets out to discover the secret to eternal life. Along the way, he discovers that much of his goal can be achieved with three simple things. Breathe properly, stay curious, and eat your beets. And save for not knowing what his appetite for the beet mangle wurzel is, The protagonist of this episode, Robbie, has a pretty good head start on at least two of those practices, breathing properly and staying curious. Beyond in many ways living up to the ideals espoused by Alabar, Robbie is also in many ways living out Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, a kid with potential, spectacular failure, and a slow, emergent rebirth to wisdom and responsibility. What makes Robbie's hero's journey so interesting, to me at least, is that unlike many protagonists in literature, he's aware of the journey he's on. Through his various practices, breathwork, work with psychedelics, and others, he's become attuned to this grand adventure and is leaning in. And unlike many other archetypal heroes who recognize the power and yoke of being a hero and often seek to shed that, Robbie is focused on becoming a hero but a hero to the only person out there that should actually look at him like a hero, his coming child. I confess, I'm in awe and even a little envious of embarking on the adventure of fatherhood the way Robbie is approaching it. I've had the incredible privilege to have conversations with many people on this podcast. And though there are many whose followings and success tower well above Robbie's, at least in many objective measures, there are few whom I'm more proud to call a friend. Thanks for listening. As a quick reminder, please follow, rate, and review our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, eat your beets, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producer is Conrad Page and associate producers are Macy Baker and Alex Sherman. Special thanks to our production partner, Quill, and of course, many thanks to Robbie for joining us today. To learn more about his work, visit To learn more about his work, visit othership.us or othership.us 
to check out their guided breathwork app and find out where you can access one of their extra sensory facilities. <laughs>